Actually, I am going to go ahead and get started because we're running behind. And then also, there is real creamer in the back now. We've replenished the jug. So if you're interested in that, um, we're a full-service church. Right. So let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for your word and for the witness and ministry of Stephen. We pray that his words would uh, penetrate our hard hearts today, uh, that uh, as the seeds of the gospel are sown, that by the power of the Holy Spirit you would water them. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, last week we talked about Stephen uh, and his ministry of healing and preaching, and everybody loved the healing ministry. They thought that that was just the greatest thing in the entire world, but then Stephen started to preach, and what happened? Uh, they, they turned on him like nobody's business. I mean, they really, uh, you'll see how much they turn on him. Uh, and so he went from a much-loved uh, minister to uh, uh, really a not-so-liked, uh, despised to the point of death, uh, herald of the gospel. And uh, we talked last week about the false paradigm that a lot of churches fall into, which is on one extreme, which tends to be, uh, let's just, I'm going to caricature it, but you're going to know what I mean. It's just helpful. Uh, but more uh, liberal sort of mainline denominations, when it comes to any sort of mission and outreach and you look at their budgets, it's almost all social service type things like sack lunch ministry, um, uh, soup kitchen, things like that, which are very good. I'm going to make that point in a minute. Uh, and then you have sort of the opposite extreme, which are more conservative evangelical congregations, which tend to reduce people to spiritual statistics. That is, my job is to get your fire insurance card punched, get you into heaven, and then, and then move on. Uh, but what we see in the ministry of Stephen, and indeed in Jesus' ministry, is that when God looks at somebody... Jesus saves the whole person, right? Not just somebody as a spiritual statistic, but yes. I mean, often that would happen where Jesus would heal somebody of some infirmity, and then the very next thing he would say is, your sins are forgiven, go, right? And uh, in, in fact, going so far as sometimes to say, so that you will know who I am, uh, the Son of Man, uh, I forgive your sins. And that, remember, that's what got Jesus into trouble, Right, the healing was fine, except when it was on the Sabbath and he ran into some trouble. But for the most part, um, Jesus uh, cares not just about you spiritually, but you as a person. It's not like you can take the person's soul and detach it, uh, it from their body or that it's so clean cut that, that our lives are this uh, intertwining mix. And so Jesus doesn't is not primarily concerned with how things are going spiritually in your life. In fact, he's concerned about all of you. Right. So he's, he's concerned about the things that you happen to be concerned about. Your marriage, your kids, your job, your finances, your parents, your, well, whatever, whatever it is that's consuming your time. And so when we come into church, it's actually um, false worship uh, to, to think, okay, now I need to shut out all that's going on in my life, and it's time to focus on Jesus and the illustration I love, and this doesn't happen here as much, but in Beaufort it happened all the time because we had a swing bridge, and so families would always show up late because of the swing bridge, and you could see the mom pulling the kids in. Sometimes they didn't all have shoes on, and then like the defeated husband kind of coming in behind, and then they would sit, and you could see her yelling at the kids, but, you know, just moving her lips, but you knew she was yelling, of it's time to pray, it's time to get focused, be Christians, 
right? Uh, when the very first thing that you're going to say out of your mouth, especially if it's a communion Sunday, is what? Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Right? So God sees it all. He knows it all. And that's actually what he's worried about. That's actually where he wants to go. The things that are keeping you up at night, those are the things that Jesus cares about, right? But sometimes, too, what we think we need and what we really need are two different things. That is my life writ large. I think that if just this, this, and this would happen, everything would be great. And you know what? Sometimes God does that. Sometimes God does say, okay, I'm going to give you this, this, and this. And then it's like my heart can't help but find something else to stress out about. Like, now that this huge prayer has been answered, now I need something else to get all wound up about. And so it's this never-ending cycle, and yet uh, God is trying to take me to a place, one, where I'm able to see things as they are, but two, that I'm able to see where he is in the midst of that and for me to put my trust in him. And so when it comes to ministry, Stephen understood that. Stephen had a holistic ministry where he understood, look, people need to be healed, but not just heal them, uh, but also see that they understand who it is that has just healed them. All right, Jesus Christ. And uh, someone had a, a very good question at the, um, at the end of last week's talk, and, and I think it's worth bringing up here because it's going to cause a huge firestorm, and I'm into that. I'm, actually, I'm, not, I'm not. I don't mind fighting. I just don't like fighting in person. So uh, they asked, well, what about supporting organizations that are not explicitly Christian. Okay. So my little MO around here for mission and outreach, and I'm not in charge of mission outreach. We have a wonderful mission and outreach committee, and Deborah Layton oversees that. But the, things that I try, the thing that I try to impress when I talk about mission outreach are three criteria at the Advent. One, they are gospel-oriented and Jesus-focused, right? They're explicitly Christian, and there's just no, no doubt about it, one. Two, if we're going to support a ministry, we're going to support them in a significant way. Like a lot of churches will kind of nickel and dime themselves and say, look at all of these ministries we're supporting. Isn't it amazing? And they're giving like 50 bucks a ministry, right? So if we're going to invest, we're going to invest in a substantial way, which might be different for different ministries. And third, not just money, but how can we get involved? Is it something that we can actually... Uh, tangibly engage ourselves. So right now, something that's very tricky is with all the Christian persecution going on right now, how does the Advent engage in that? So what we're doing right now is we're working with a ministry in the Middle East that is taking on all of these Syrian and Iraqi refugees, mostly Syrian, because the Iraqis are, are moving up toward Turkey. Um, so are the Syrians, but some of them are moving south into places like Israel, and um, who are Christians who have been displaced, whose families have been murdered, who they have been at the point of the bayonet, and whose, um, whose churches are now, are now gone. So I don't know if you read the statistic. For the first time in 1,500 years, uh, there was not a Christian worship service in Nineveh, uh, which is in 1,600 years, in Nineveh, which is, of course, the city uh, where... Um, uh, Jonah uh, went to to preach the gospel. Um, and it's actually a very funny story because God told him to go and Jonah said no. And then God took care of that. And Jonah went and preached the gospel and the city repented. And you remember Jonah's response? He was mad. I knew you would be gracious. I knew that you would do this. Um, that's very funny. Uh, but 
but for the first time in 1,600 years, there was not a Christian worship service there. And so partnering with these people, one, they have real human needs, right? They, they, they don't have a home. So partner with, absolutely, let's, let's get them medical treatment. Let's get them a roof over their heads. Let's make sure their kids are schooled. All of those things. Uh, but even beyond that, what we're trying to do now is when the dust settles, we pray so, and things are set to right so far as they can be here on this side of the Jordan, uh, no pun intended, uh, we want to go back and we want to rebuild those churches with them. Like we actually want to go over there and, and help them rebuild their homes and rebuild their churches and worship alongside them for the first time in since that blip for 1,600 years. Now, uh, right now, getting people engaged and involved over there, I can think of a few people I'd like to send over there um, uh, and a uh, little, little scouting trip, uh, but um, that's not really happening right now, right? It's, it's, uh, it's that most of them are teenagers, but um, I mean, that's just not, uh, not going to happen right now, and so uh, we, we engage them with the eye toward uh, finally getting over there and actually... Uh, being a real presence there, and not just a hit and run, but investing in a village for 10 years or whatever we decide to invest in them. And, and we go over and we, we invest in that village for 10 years and help support the Christian community there. Um, and so something like that, I don't know about you, but I hear about that and I think, that sounds awesome. Let's, let's, get in, let's engage in that. That's really good. But what about those organizations that are not Christian but maybe doing really good things? Here's what I would, I would this is, now this is just my opinion. Uh, but here's what I would say about that. Some people will do this, uh, and we don't, Lauren and I. But some people will say, you know what? I'm just going to give to the church, and I'm going to let the church sort that out. All right? Some people do that. Uh, and then uh, other people, uh, like Lauren and I, we tithe to the church, but we also give to various and sundry ministries that we're, uh, we're committed to. Uh, and we will even uh, support certain community organizations just because we think that they enhance our community, whether it be uh, the botanical garden uh, or the zoo. But that's mostly for the discount, right, Jim Priester? Where are you? And, uh, and then um, and, and other things like that. But where I tend to draw the line is, uh, is for, if you have an organization, like one, one thing uh, that is, is on the radar screen big time these days because of the media is domestic abuse and domestic violence. Let's say that there's an organization out there that's not necessarily Christian, but they're doing really good work in the area of domestic uh, violence and abuse prevention and helping women uh, and even sometimes men and families uh, get into a good place, support them. Right? Support, I think that, that uh, that's great. They're doing good work and it's a worthy cause. Where I tend to get a little bit hung up are those organizations that say, we're Christian and they're not. And I think uh, you probably understand what I'm saying. Those things that, that will sort of uh, prey on the sensitivities of Christians and say they're Christian, but their methodology and how they do things uh, is not Christian. And so I actually think it's, it, I'd be more willing to support an organization that has integrity and says, you know what, uh, we're, not, we're not Christians, uh, but, but this is what we do, and, and I, can, I can get on board uh, with some of those things. So I'm not sure that that necessarily answered the question of who, uh, who to support. Um, but what I would say is, above all, where is God working? 
All right, that's one of the things that, that I try to look at is, is where is God working? Uh, one of the great problems of the Advent is that we have to say no to a lot of good ideas. All right, a lot of people have great ideas. You know, I feel like people say, you know, Andrew, I have a wonderful plan for your life. And, uh, and, and I have to respond to that. And um, in, in that, with having to say no to a lot of good things, the real litmus is, okay, well, where is God working? Is this just something that, that we kind of want to do? Or is this something that, that God is actually clearly laying the groundwork for and he is in the midst of it? A good example of that is about a year and a half ago, Joe Gibbs and I sat down and we thought, wouldn't it be great, and we felt like God was leading us in this direction, if the Advent could adopt strategic parishes in the Diocese of Alabama. And by strategic, this is what I mean. Now, we're, we were willing to help out anybody. One of my favorite parishes in the entire diocese is St. Paul's Greensboro. Wonderful place, but it's in Greensboro, right? So if the congregation in Greensboro starts to grow, it means somebody's ticked off with the Presbyterian minister, right? <laughs> I mean, basically... So uh, we went down there and we preached and we, and we helped transition them into a new rector's position. Uh, but that idea never came to fruition. So we just kind of thought, well, maybe that's not what God wants us to do until uh, in the past two weeks, uh, we've been asked to adopt the congregation in Trustville. And so here's a congregation. It's right on Route 11, the main drag through uh, Trustville, six acres right on Route 11 in a, that really cute neighborhood over by where the school complex is. And uh, they have 65 people in worship on, 70, on Sunday. And, and I'm just sort of thinking, how is that humanly possible? Right? I mean, I figured, you know, if you just kind of said, hey, we have church, that in Trustville you'd have a, a good number of people. But uh, one of the things that's really wonderful about that congregation is how self-aware they are. Like, they've not had heretical leadership. They've just, they said, look, we're sheep without a shepherd, and we would love to partner with you. And it was a very funny moment in the vestry meeting because uh, it was like a flashback to my childhood of being in a small town Episcopal church because you have like a 7 p.m. vestry meeting. And like there's the cast of characters around the table and uh, we, we talked about what it would look like in this partnership. And um, at the end, the senior warden said, I mean, do we need to talk about it anymore? Let's go ahead and vote. And Joe Gibbs says, no, 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 no. Like, you need to pray about this and you need to talk about it. And they did. And so we're sending Joe Gibbs to be the minister at Trustville on an interim basis. He's still going to be here, right? He's still going to be here. He's still Ken and Gibbs. Uh, but we're going to partner with them as the Advent, and I'll be going out there and helping with things and vice versa and really helping them grow and really helping them be a lighthouse for the gospel uh, in, in Trustville, which does have better barbecue and Mexican restaurants. So uh, there's something to be said about that. Uh, so... So those are things where you see, okay, God is moving in this area. Let's, let's get excited about that. Let's really throw ourselves into that and get involved in that. And so uh, when it comes to uh, the ministry, and it's almost always hard, because you look at Stephen's ministry, God is clearly moving in it, but it's not pretty, right? It's not pretty. In fact, at this point in Acts chapter 7, he gets seized. And I'm not going to read the whole, it says Stephen's speech. You know what, I'd like, who in the world had the job of writing headings for each chapter of the Bible, right? Because I don't know if you know this, but like back in the day when the early church read these, it didn't say seven chosen to serve, 
or Stephen's speech, right? So uh, it actually is an editorial comment that, that sometimes is a little bit unhelpful. Um, but here, what Stephen does is he's not speaking, he's preaching. He preaches this sermon to those who have seized him. And it's actually, you can see, if you go back, I encourage you to read it. He goes to this narrative of the history of Israel, right? All the way, so they ask him, are these things so? When they said, he has come to change the customs that Moses delivered to us. They ask him, is this so? And then Stephen begins to preach, starting with Abraham. And he goes from Abraham and hits pretty much every big thing in the Old Testament until he finally gets uh, all the way down to the building of uh, the temple. And the whole time in chapter 7, as he's preaching this sermon, everybody, who's, everybody who is listening to him would have been like, this is a great sermon. Like he's telling us exactly what we want to hear. And then he gets to verse 50 and he asks a question. Did not my hand make all these things? That's God speaking. And then he, you can almost feel the pause. And then Stephen changes course radically and says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. And, uh, and then uh, they uh, cast uh, their stones at him and, and killed him. And so in this dramatic reversal in, in the history of Israel, what he does is, I mean, how many of us hear what we want to hear? Almost all of us, even in sermons and preaching. Now, I know that there are some things that, you know, that, that something will be said in a sermon and people gravitate towards certain things and they'll sort of take away and say, you know, I really didn't care for that part of the sermon. But he said this one thing and it was really something and I've, it stuck with me. Um, but I've also had people come out uh, on Sunday morning and say, well, that was a really good sermon. And I will always, if you've ever done this, I will, I will. I must always, if I haven't, uh, I must have uh, just been trying to pass you on. Uh, I will ask, uh, what made it good? What, so be prepared for that. What made it good? And I'm always startled by the number of people who say, well, this is what made it good. And I think to myself, well, I was actually trying to say the opposite of that. Um, uh, and it happens so often that I have, I mean, for a while there I thought, what, I mean, could I be any more clear in saying this? And, and then I realized, like in Acts chapter 7, even I, uh, even I, I'll just tell you who the worst of this was, Frank Limehouse. Like he would come in and he'd say, well, why did you say, nobody said that, uh, Frank, go, go away. Uh, and so, uh, so sometimes our hearts are so inclined that we're listening to one thing, but our hearts are actually interpret interpreting it in a totally different way. And so even though everything Stephen says is true about what happens in the Old Testament, uh, what is left out, like he preaches the objective fact of what God had done in the life of the people of Israel, but what he left out was their reaction. Was their reaction. And that is the story behind the story. 
because God has done all of these great things in the life of the people of Israel and even in our lives. And pretty much the prevailing theme is, and then we forget. And then we forget. Or we only remember those things that really that we would like to remember. And so uh, there's an interesting scene in the Gospels where Jesus uh, says that uh, the whole thing about keeping silent and the rocks crying out, you know, I can make children of Abraham out of these rocks. And there's a question about slavery. And one of the Jewish folks there says, uh, we're children of Abraham. We've never been under slavery. It's like, that is the most the least self-aware answer that, what are you talking about? Did you forget Egypt, (laughs) right? Have you forgotten the Babylonian captivity? Have you forgotten all of these events in the history of Israel where it is just a flat out lie to say that you've never been under slavery and yet uh, there's a part of us that would love to gloss over that part of history and yet there it is between the lines. And Stephen pulls it out from between the lines and inserts it right in front of their face and says, in spite of all the goodness and graciousness of God, uh, there's never been a time where it was readily and wholly accepted. Never. One of the most gracious books in the entirety of the Bible is the book of Judges. That doesn't sound very gracious, does it? Um, And what happened was uh, the people uh, wanted a leader and, uh, and they needed a leader, uh, but they weren't asking for a king. But God, in his mercy, raised up judges. And the whole book of Judges is this ongoing cycle of the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They repented. God sent them a judge. Things went really well. The judge delivered them from the hand of the Amalekites or whoever it was. Things went really well. And then what happens? And then the people did what was evil on the side of the Lord, and da-da-da-da-da. It's this ongoing cycle over and over and over again. And more often than not, who were the judges that God picked? Not the people who would win the contest, right? If there were an election, nobody would have voted for anybody, for the most part, uh, who was a judge, whether it be Deborah, certainly Gideon. Remember Gideon? Where was Gideon when God called him to be the mighty judge of Israel? Hiding in the wine press. He was thrashing out wheat in the wine press so that the enemies couldn't see him. He was hiding. And then God spoke to him, and Gideon, of course, said, you're wrong about this. You're wrong about this. But even in that, we see the graciousness of God, because one of the interesting things about Gideon is and they can't see it, and they didn't see it at that time, and often we don't see it, that that cycle of people did what was wrong in the sight of the Lord, they repented, and therefore God sent them a judge to deliver them, they're delivered. With Gideon, people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they didn't repent. They actually didn't repent. But God in his grace and mercy did what? He sent them a judge anyway, right? the most unlikely of judges. And, uh, and Gideon uh, has this sort of half-hearted leadership start out. Uh, he's kind of slipping out of the blocks. Uh, and yet, uh, anytime God sends a deliverer or a messenger, a prophet, uh, the reaction of the people is always, we don't like this. We don't like this at all. And in fact, we don't like you, often to the point of, of death. 
I mean, even uh, the forerunner to Jesus, who was the one who pointed, who was the voice of the one crying in the wilderness? John the Baptist, right? So John the Baptist uh, was preaching repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And what was his reward? Right? Herod's stepdaughter uh, did a little shake in front of him. And he said, whatever you want up to half of my kingdom, you can have it. And he said, I want the head of John the Baptist. And Herod, okay. And then, and then so Her and the reason why is because John was preaching against the evil going on in that household. And you can read your Bibles and find out all of that exciting stuff. And so Stephen is doing uh, what the prophets have always done, which is simply hold out, this is the mighty work of God, uh, is simply believe in it. Simply with blind and naked faith, trust in what God is doing in your life. Uh, do not disbelieve, uh, but believe. And they won't have any of it because in their hearts they think we're pretty good and we've been pretty faithful. When the story of Israel and even the church, even the church is just one disaster after another, really. Now, this connection of being able to appeal what everybody knows to be true is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, uh, it can be used in the way that Stephen is using it to convict and condemn hearts. Now, Stephen would never, ever say that his heart is completely blameless. Uh, Stephen, at one point in time, was dead in sin and trespasses until Jesus saved him. But I am always alarmed um, and somewhat bewildered uh, by the number of preachers that I hear that, that lack transparency and vulnerability in the pulpit, right? talking about what real life is actually like. I have a very good friend. He's one of the best preachers I've ever heard, and I've listened to a lot of his sermons. And in the umpteen sermons that I've heard him preach, I've only heard him use one illustration from his personal life. One. And it was involving some sort of snake under a board. I mean, nothing really, uh, no one, I mean, I, I didn't connect, whatever. Uh, but now I'm not talking about the person who gets up in the pulpit and, and they start sharing something and you think, oh my gosh, you know, just shut them down. Let's get them out of there, you know, before he says too much. And I know I kind of get up to the edge of that. Um, and, uh, but, I mean, if you're not able to connect with, the preacher in a way of this is real life, right? It's true about God, what this person is saying, but it's also true about my real life. Uh, it's very hard to make that connection. And clearly, Stephen connected, right? There's no doubt he connected. Why? It was a pretty strong reaction. If he hadn't connected, people have been like, it was okay, right? It, Kind of lost me at that point, uh, but, but really uh, it, it didn't hit close to home. Uh, Stephen drops an atomic bomb on their hearts, right? It hits so close to home that it's not to be believed, where they react very strongly uh, against him. And there are times uh, when people will leave even, I mean, I've had people leave hearing my preaching, and, and they have left, left angry. They have left angry. Um, one, and sometimes they communicate that with me. Um, sometimes they don't. Uh, one person who communicated it with me said, um, I think that you're too easy on people. And I, I 
called them and I said, well, what do you mean I'm too easy? Oh, they're not here. They're, they're the former pair, so I can... Uh, let's name names. Just kidding. Uh, I said, what do you mean I'm too easy on people? And they said, well, you say that, that God will forgive us in Jesus no matter what. And then you're too... I said, well, it sounds to me that maybe your complaint is with God. Maybe God's too easy on people. Well, that didn't help. Uh, and, um, uh, but... Uh, nonetheless, a, a lot like Jonah, begrudging uh, God's generosity. And if a sermon doesn't stick with you, whether it agitates you or encourages you, if anything, I was actually very pleased by that conversation because th- this person was clearly grappling, what does it mean that God's grace is greater than my sin? What does that actually mean? And for the first time in their lives, I think, they were dealing with the issue of what does real freedom look like in my life? What does it mean to be freed from the chains and bondage of sin and what the world thinks and actually be able to be me and my identity in Jesus Christ? Now, you might say, well, that's someone else's, Andrew. But I think that it's true of that person because that's what they were grappling with. Is God's grace big enough to forgive even me? Or is God's grace big enough to forgive somebody who has really hurt me in my life? And that's something that if you're leaving a sermon and saying, I feel overwhelmed by God's love for me, and it's really setting deep in my heart and um, praise the Lord, uh, but also, the sermon has done its work, too, if, if it agitates you for the right reasons. If it agitates you for the right reasons. Um, you know, I, I hear sermons that are from the book of Second Opinion uh, every once in a while, and not here, uh, but out and about, and, and those, those ought to agitate you. Uh, but I hope that the sermons that you hear are, are more healing than they are helpful that are more good news than they are good advice. Okay. So Stephen is, uh, is actually preaching a powerful message which has evoked a, responsibil- a, res- uh, a response uh, from his hearers. And the issue that he goes straight to is the issue and the question of who killed Jesus? Right. How many of y'all ever took a comparative religion class in, in college? Right, or a historical Jesus class in college. Right? It, this is the big question, and especially if you have a professor who uh, really does not, um, is not a believer in Jesus. Uh, they love to talk about this question. And so on the one hand, you have people who answer the question. Here, Stephen, he's talking about two things here. One, literally the people that are within earshot of him were somewhat responsible for the death of Jesus, whether they were in the crowd that day or whether they were actually behind the scenes orchestrating Jesus' death that day. So on the one hand, do the Jews of Jerusalem have a hand to play in Jesus' death? Yes. Your professor in the historical Jesus class is going to say, yes, but the only authority that actually had the ability to put someone to death, although this story undermines that because clearly they were doing it, uh, but it was really Pilate. Who, who killed Jesus. Right? But what the Bible says, and the Bible does answer this question, is who killed Jesus? We did. Right? We did. And yet God sets his sights 
toward that hill and Jesus takes up his cross and he goes willingly, as I mentioned in the sermon this morning, uh, and yet uh, it was our brokenness, our sin, that caused his death on the cross to be necessary. For us, in order for us to have a relationship with God, that's what was necessary. And so this question of who killed Jesus, which even these guys are kind of hung up on, the real answer is we did. We did. And so you can probably on National Geographic watch some two-hour program on who's responsible for Jesus' death. And they never get to the, they never get to the right answer, which is we did. They're always looking at socio-political uh, answers to that question. Now, um, one of the things that I, I want to say, uh, too, is uh, within uh, the church, when we say we killed Jesus, and when we look at the nation of Israel, the people Israel, and the new Israel, the church, uh, we're not very different from, from the way that, that they are, that uh, we're full of hypocrisy and sin as much as any other demographic. But I hope that what the church has is the courage to acknowledge that truth. Right? A lot of Christians try to downplay, well, you know, we've got a couple bad apples, but we're really, you know, we've, don't, you know, we've got our Jimmy Swaggers and we've got these people. And, uh, but, well, that's a self-righteous answer because that's insinuating that you're the poster child for the church. And as long as we looked at you, you'd, we'd be great. Uh, and I know if that were the case for me, we'd be sunk. Right? Nobody would, y'all would, if y'all could see what goes on in my mind, you wouldn't come back next Sunday. Uh, you'd, you'd hold your kids back, you'd sort of shimmy that way. Um, and so, this acknowledgement of one of the things that Christianity offers is it actually shows us, gosh, I'm a hypocrite. Right? That's what Paul says in Romans 7. I mean, the definition of hypocrisy the thing that I want to do, I'm not doing. And the thing I don't want to do is exactly what I'm doing. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will actually rescue me from my own hypocrisy? But the first step is to be able to say, you know what? I am a hypocrite. But here's what often happens in the church, and I've mentioned this many times, but Christians are the only army that shoots their wounded. And what do we do with the Jimmy Swaggarts of the world? What do we do with the people who have very big and public sins? Right? One of the advantages to my life the things that I struggle with are really easy to hide. <laughs> I just admit it. Like, I mean, it's easy. my sins I, that I struggle with don't necessarily manifest themselves, manifest it themselves publicly. And yet, what do we do with the people who, in our community, have blown it royally in a very public way? And the human reaction is to, is to run away, is to absolutely run away. Now, if this person is saying, if this person is saying, um, I don't see what the big problem is, that's a problem. But if you have somebody who's really royally blown it and they cry out for mercy and rescue, the church ought to be the first one on the scene to help pick them up and by God's grace and mercy to help them put their lives back together in spite of what the rest of the community says. Right? And yet, often that's not 
that's not what happens. And a lot of people who do blow it royally uh, feel like they can never darken the doors of the church again because they're afraid uh, that people will look at them and simply say, oh, well, it's all fine and well. You're a Christian now, huh? Uh, when, in fact, all of us are in the same boat. Uh, all of us who are Christians also carry uh, hypocrite club cards. Uh, and some, some, some of us have lower numbers than others. Uh, but, uh, but nonetheless, they're, they're, that's not true. We're all the same number. But, but, but there it is. And so what we see in Stephen's ministry is the ability just to be honest and tell it like it is. And uh, unfortunately, come what may, uh, as they're about to kill him for telling the truth. Uh, for telling the truth, and in, lest we get self-righteous, that we actually put our put ourselves in the place of these people who are listening to Stephen, and um, and ask the question: Well, then, what does being a Christian look like? What does being a Christian look like? I, I found this quote, uh, and the, it was an interview, and the interviewer was asking someone who's just been made a bishop in in the church. How do you envision your role as a bishop in the church? And, uh, and this guy says, somebody, who I'm not going to name, told us in seminary that, quote, our people's greatest need is our personal holiness. When one looks at the biblical criteria for an overseer in 1 Timothy 3, it is clear that personal holiness should be the first priority of a bishop. We cannot run a diocese well if we cannot lead in our family. We cannot teach well if our actions don't match our words. Pray for that man's ministry. Uh, because if the most important need in, uh, in our congregation is uh, my personal holiness, again, we're sunk. Uh, and that's not to say that I'm out living uh, a licentious not, uh, life, but our most important need is honesty about us and honesty about who God is and his infinite goodness grace, mercy, and love. That is our greatest need. I am not your greatest need. Jesus Christ is your greatest need. And in him uh, you are found. I understand what he's saying, but again, this is not reality. I understand what, and I know what 1 Timothy 3 says, but I think you need to look at it in the whole context of the biblical narrative. Things like, uh, if we, we can't run a diocese well, if we cannot lead in our family, we cannot teach well, if our actions don't match our words, well, what do we say to the Christian parents whose children have gone off the deep end? You're a bad, unfaithful parent? You are completely and totally at fault because you have bad kids? I grew up with a family, most godly, wonderful family that I've ever known. They had five children. Four are actually in active ministry right now, and one lives in Montana and wants nothing to do with Jesus. And they will wring their hands and say, what did we do wrong with him? Well, Nothing. It's just the way that, that it turned out. But do I look at their lives and say, you should have stopped at four kids because then you'd be able to have leadership in the church. <laughs> now, I, we've all thought that. Uh, but, you know, if you'd only had the four, you could be a church leader. But because you've got the one out in Montana, you know, uh, making moose jerky and working in a coffee bar, uh, you're disqualified. You're disqualified. Right? <sighs> Uh, let me tell you, the qualification, uh, the qualification for members of the church, especially those in leadership, is uh, people who uh, can echo what John Newton said in that the two great truths that I've learned in my life is that I am a great sinner. 
but that Christ is an even greater Savior. Grace greater than our sin, so that we can have the truth about ourselves placed in front of us. And even though it can be repulsive and we don't want to hear it, rather than react, uh, we run straight to the mercy and into the loving arms of Jesus Christ. And that's what Stephen's ministry is all about. And you know where that got him? Killed. It got him killed. Because it's a message that the world doesn't understand. It doesn't make sense. Because the world does kick you when you're down. The world does gravitate toward the strong. Uh, The world hates hypocrites. And yet, that's who Jesus loves. And that's who Jesus came to save. Questions, comments, concerns? (laughs) Nobody will be judged of hypocrisy. Andrew, I certainly um, agree so much that we need grace and we need a lot more of it. And one thing in balancing that is with the political correctness of today and speaking the truth, I see Christians as the body shrinking from the truth because they're so intimidated by political correctness. Could you just speak to that? Yeah, I think that um, yeah, that's... That's often the case, um, and I think part of it too is that in, especially in the South, it's very hard to sort of delineate like where does the church begin and just sort of cocktail chat end. Um, so it's very free and easy to talk about being a Christian in the South, but what does that mean? And most people think that Christianity means just being really nice. I've told you we had a lady at our congregation in Buford who said, oh, my, my former son-in-law is the most Christian man you'll ever meet, and uh, he was a Jewish orthodontist. Not that there's anything wrong with being an orthodontist, but, or, or Jewish for that matter, but, but it was sort of like, I think he would have sort of shrunk back at that description of him. But what was she saying? She was saying, he's gentlemanly, he's nice, he's courteous. And, and that is not what Christianity is about. And so I think that um, we're in a burnt over district, as it were, where you almost lose the freshness in the wonder and amazement of the good news in Jesus Christ. And that when you hear preaching especially, one, they either simply assume that everybody knows what you're talking about, which I've stopped doing, even here. Uh, And then two, uh, that they shrink away from it because I think there's a lack of confidence that Jesus has the power to transform people even today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I think a lot of it is recapturing a confidence in the gospel message and the person and work of Jesus Christ that has been largely lost. And when you have supreme confidence in that, you can be like Stephen and say, this is way too important for me to worry about how you feel. Now, but you're not doing it if it's rooted, you're not doing it in a jerky way. Now, I know people who do that, right? Again, it's that false paradigm, that extreme. But if you're actually meeting somebody where they are in their real needs in life, if you're actually with them in the trenches, if you're, if you're meeting the hypocrite where they are and loving them, that's different. That's different. And the light of the gospel can shine in that. Um, and, and, and hopefully that God would give them ears, ears to hear. I think that the whole political correctness thing, it's a blip on the screen. It, it, you know, culture changes all the time. Um, and, and this is this is no different than what we've really dealt with all along, just a different manifestation. And I think it's kind of easing up a little bit uh, in the sense that now we've got, gone from, in some areas, if you preach this, we hate your guts. We still hate your guts. But now because there's so much idea of freedom uh, that 
you can say pretty much whatever you want and it all has to be tolerated. Uh, but you are seeing now a creeping back of, of you can say whatever you want as long as it's not about Jesus. That's the only thing you can't talk about. And on that note, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.